Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's episode features a guest, Courtney Yasmine. She's a Minnesota and New York City-based singer-songwriter and a wonderful artist. We discuss Bob Dylan. Uh, this is now the third episode in a row where we've talked about an artist other than Joni Mitchell, and I promise you we're returning to Joni soon. As always, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or whatever platform you downloaded it on. That really does help. You can find me on most social media outlets, Facebook and Instagram, and uh, I'm sure some other places as well, uh, under Zachary Scott Johnson. Zachary is Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y. Scott only has one T, S-C-O-T, and Johnson is J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can also check out my YouTube project, The Song A Day Project, where I record a song a day every day. It's been running for over 1,500 consecutive days at this point. The reason I want to specifically mention it uh, for this particular episode is I've been in the habit over the last two years in particular of doing complete albums in their entirety. There are a couple reasons I do this. Uh, but for Bob Dylan in particular, I've done his first five records in their entirety. And I, my goal is to make my way through all of his uh, work, which will be which will take some time, but I'm, I'm slowly but surely getting there. So um, if you're interested, you can hear my Bob Dylan covers all over the place at The Song A Day Project, all one word squished together, The Song A Day Project on YouTube, or of course you can just search my name there too. Thanks, I think we're ready to start the show. Back for another episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. I'm here with my guest today, Courtney Yasmine. How are you? Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on of the podcast. Course. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. It's it's fun. We've been talking actually now for quite a while. We have. <laughs> We've decided that we enjoy talking to each other, so yes. this should be great. Yes. Well, we're going to talk. This is actually now, I think, the third episode in a row. I'm going off of memory here. I don't have anything in front of me, but... This is now the third episode in a row of the Joni Mitchell podcast where we're not really talking about Joni. We're talking about another musician, but we're talking about probably the most compared to Joni Mitchell Mm -hmm. person out there, which is Bob Dylan. That's probably right. Yeah. It's nice that there are the male and the female bookends on that, aren't they? Contemporaries Mm -hmm. of each other. Well, before we get too far, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your music? I'm a fan of your music, but for anybody who's listening who who isn't yet familiar with you. Give them your story. Uh, Well, so um, I'm Courtney Yasmine, and I've been a songwriter uh, since I was a little kid. I I admired people like Cat Stevens when I was little, and I went to a concert and saw him uh, the moment that he came back out onto the stage with just the guitar and the band didn't come back out. Yeah. And he played the old uh, father and son song of his. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, uh, I wonder how you get to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that happened to me was I went to a big church on Christmas Eve when I was a kid. I was like maybe 10 around this, all this time, eight or 10. And um, my family didn't go to church usually, and so it was the first time on a Christmas Eve that I had seen these kids come out, and they sang, and a girl got to sing a solo. Nice. And my whole insides were screaming, like, how did she get to do that? How do they get to do that? Mm-hmm. How? D- what is that? And um, those were the two formative experiences, and I've I've sort of been trying to get from, you know, my 
my little place in the world to some some beautiful glowing place yeah well i'm sure as you've been performing there's been some kid somewhere in your audiences who've looked at you and said how did she get to do that so you know it's all full circle but right so you have six records out so far i've i've made six albums and a few you know eps Mm -hmm. and uh, a bunch of i think pretty fun music videos we've made uh we've done a lot of I've done a lot of touring in Europe with a band um, because I had uh, lucky sales in in Europe Um, some DJs uh, independent DJs promoted my music that they just heard on off of CD baby right when I first started out Um, Lufthansa Airlines picked up a (laughs) couple of my songs and uh, that that got some people listening to me so i i did some things in europe and i made these records and we made these music videos some of them in wonderful places like paris france and uh i don't know i feel like i've just been sort of laying the groundwork and sort of uh toiling in relative obscurity uh, sort of (laughs) sort of build building something i feel like i'm building something what's the expression of build it and they will come So uh, it's my approach has been, I think I say I come from this Bob Dylan school of songwriting. Um, I grew up in Chicago and then I ran away from home when I was uh, 17 and I ran to northern Minnesota because there was an old deserted cabin there that my family had and no one was there. But I, I, when I got there, I started really getting into Bob Dylan because that's where he was from. Right. And ever since then, uh, I've had sort of an idea about kind of an alternative rock uh, coming out of a sort of folk base and trying to do something meaningful and also fun. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, too. I actually kind of I'm going to ask you a question that I kind of actively dislike when I get it because I never <laughs> know how to answer it. So I understand if you feel the same way and don't want to answer it. But do you classify yourself as a folk singer, as a rock singer, do you put classifications on your music in any way? Um, I I feel like I think about that a lot, and I you know I I guess I actually like that question because I'm I think I'm um I, I my career I didn't start having a career until like Facebook had started and MySpace was sort of already yeah. kind of winding down. I'm I I've made this career in the past kind of ten years. And so I really do uh, think about my career very much in tandem with social media and the internet. And um, so with that in mind, I feel like you're constantly forced to answer that question in in that regard. And, uh, And it helps the world and it helps you understand you understand the world better. The world understands who you are better if you can navigate it. You know, with some kind of, and I, I mean, I I don't, you know, you you can't escape yourself. Right. You I can't turn into something that I'm not. So at some point, you have to kind of come face to face with, okay, that's what I really am. So right. what what is Courtney Asmine really? I would say that uh, I'm like, if we're gonna talk about Bob Dylan, it'd be like when Bob went electric. Okay. Yeah. You know, I can hear that. Yeah. That's the way I think of myself. And I also would say that I had a period of time kind of in the 
middle records so far of what I've done that are kind of uh, the raunchier period that was sure. kind of um, like when Rod Stewart started out with like songs like Maggie May and mm-hmm. then he started doing like Tonight's the Night kind of stuff. Yeah. I think I had a little bit of a of a, that type of a rock period as well. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm not like offended by the question. I just never know how to answer it. I think I have it's too hard. many influences is the thing. And so, I, but if pushed, I just say I'm a folk singer. And people don't even really anymore know what that means a lot of times. You say, I'm like James Taylor. Okay, I kind of get it. Or Bob Dylan or whatever. But yeah, okay. it's not really accurate. You either. know what I would say about that is that I think when you're a female, yeah. you have to define it. We, You and I already touched on it, something about like whether there's like sexuality in certain types of music more sure. or less. And I would say that I can't really just say uh, I'm a folk singer because my music is too sexy for that. <laughs> it's I'm too sexy for my for my music. <laughs> for your folk music. Um, I think I have to I have to end up saying that I'm. It's like alternative rock. Yeah. Because of it having a little more um, challenging, edgy elements to the words mm-hmm. and to my delivery and to the performance yeah i i guess i always end up kind of rolling the right right down the middle is alternative rock Mm -hmm. is you know where it's about the words right Mm -hmm. some of the people that we were kind of passively referencing in our you know off mic discussion that i hear Mm -hmm. in your music is lucinda williams or chrissy hind you know yeah some of that stuff which is great that's some of the stuff i listen to most you know yeah i would say those Casey Chambers, too. Do you know Casey Mm -hmm, Chambers? I do, yeah. Yeah, I would say I, uh, you know, I always think about the guys like Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen kind of people. But when it really comes to, like, me actually writing songs and and singing and performing, I'm not acting like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. It's more about the female, you know, the female iconic artist's who came up during the 20th century, right? It's right. just a, it was a 20th century phenomenon to see Chrissy Hine playing an electric guitar and Joan Jett and um, I guess Bonnie Raitt, although, you know, we would not say my music is like hers. Um, but yeah, those those women, and I guess the other thing is about playing a guitar. Sure. You know, um, and and then people like Joni Mitchell, who of course we all hold in such high regard, uh, she is not shaking her butt. You know, she's not that person. She's not. Um, she she stands very seriously when she performs. Yep. You know what I mean. I do. Uh, and I I do tend to get a little more goofy than that. And it's funny too because there's actually a relatively I don't this is one of those stories that has I would say as equal a chance as being uh, completely nonsense as the possibility that it's true. But when you think about actually, and it involves several of the people that we've been talking about. So Joni apparently played this gig at some point in the early '90s that Chrissy Hind was there. And Carly Simon was there. Now, Carly Simon, of course, gets a lot of the Joni Mitchell comparisons. They were coming up at about the same time. They were both female singer-songwriters who were 
a little bit on the like softer folkier side that you know until Joni went jazz and Carly Simon went more rock and roll a little bit um and, True, although we also would say that their personalities are very different. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. And there's the James Taylor, you know, connections mm-hmm. with both of them, too. But mm-hmm. but anyway, so the story went that uh, Chrissy Hind, who I guess must be friends with Joni, and that makes sense, she went backstage mm-hmm. and they were, they were kind of making fun of Carly Simon for the fact that, like, she mm-hmm. was kind of a sex symbol. It be, mm-hmm. still is, in a way. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of, like... She not only is she not out there projecting herself as a as a sexual you know mm-hmm. being in a in a way, mm-hmm. but like kind of looking down on somebody mm-hmm. who is. Although Chrissy Hind also to a certain extent is kind of you know. Well, you know this this is a uh, I think I think the career of female songwriters. Um, to some degree, rises and falls on this type of discussion. I know. Isn't it crazy? It, it, which is not, the, obviously, the male thing. Although, I guess we can, I've, because of my touring in Europe, I see how the Europeans or the, the, the United Kingdom, at least, views Rod Stewart, who really wrote some great songs. Um, and he is sort of the bimbo right. of the family, you know, mm-hmm. where Bob, it, Bob Dylan is not a bimbo, you know, and clearly Joni Mitchell's not a bimbo. Right. And I mean, then they're, you know, in the songwriter thing, I mean, Joan Jett wrote her own songs, but she's, she was a tough girl. So that's, right. so I, I don't know, I guess Madonna would be the one that we'd say, all right, well, <laughs> she's the... She's the, you know, the nasty girl of the singer-songwriter female. Because she did write the songs. Yeah. She's um, actually a really good songwriter. Yep. And, yep. and Joni is a big influence on her, so yeah. she says. I honestly yeah. love Madonna. Yeah. I, I mean, think she's great. I do, too. And I definitely, uh, I, think, I think she has subconsciously, if not consciously, really, really inspired my ideas about how I look on stage Um, you know at the risk of just putting on a pointy bra and you know and a pair of fish (laughs) and saying okay this is my outfit for tonight Um, it's an interesting thing because you how seriously do you want to be taken you know know. how Adele stands very straight and she doesn't play an instrument on stage Um, there's you know she's not Although she's body in between the yeah right her commentary yeah. her talking but her performance is really uh, very kind of stoic and yeah. not sexy yeah you know anyway I don't know what we can make <laughs> of all that but I think that that I think we brought up a good thing which is that this element of how sexy you want to be can really come back to bite you in the yeah, rear absolutely and it can affect. Uh, what genre you're considered, and it can affect how seriously uh, people consider you to be a a real artist. Yeah. Whatever. It's just, it's a double standard in so many ways that, you know, it's not fair. It's like so many things. Well, right. But like we just said, Rod Stewart was considered to be, (laughs) you know, he was a male, and he he got the bimbo thing for a while there. Yeah. Well, let's talk Dylan. So when when we first started talking about this, when we were going back and forth, and yeah. I asked you to do this, um, you said let's let's talk Bob Dylan. So it, where did the Bob Dylan? Now you kind of referenced it already when you were living sure. in northern Minnesota. But can you remember like the the formative Dylan period for you? 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I would honestly say that um, I think that uh, geography, you know, there's some expression about geography is everything. But yeah. um, because I had spent uh, time in northern Minnesota near the Canadian border, um, I like the music that has like a, a sort of the sound of remote remoteness like mm -hmm. a, a sound of sort of isolation and um the 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 lone voice um and i i think when i i had run away from home i was living up in this little cabin there was a wood stove there was a furnace that had just like i was advised to not use it very much because there was only a little bit of oil and it, it, it wasn't a well-insulated thing. It was a thing that was meant to be just for the summertime. And uh, there was a dictation machine there that had been my grandfather's. And this is in the year 1978. And uh, I went to the a uh, little school in the town and there were going to be 15 kids graduating that year from high school and I was going to be one of them. I was going to graduate from the school there. And the kids there started, um, they, they would pass around these little cassette tapes with um, masking tape writing on them that they had bootlegged from all over the all over the place, and almost all of it was Bob Dylan music. Really? And this was 1978. I don't know why those kids, maybe it was just because they were from there and he yeah. was from there, that was his birthplace. I don't know why they were listening to that music so much, but they were. And um, those, those little cassette tapes kept kind of coming by me, and I had this little dictation machine with my grandpa's, so I just kept popping those in to hear what they were about. I really didn't hardly even know what Bob Dylan looked like at that time. Um, and I I had come out of Chicago where people were listening to the Bee Gees. Sure. <laughs> and Saturday Night Fever was popular and stuff. So I, I really, I didn't really know that much about him at all. Um, but I was truly, I think that because of where I was sitting in that cabin, looking out over the frozen tundra, um, with no electric lights for miles. Um, and I was listening to that voice. I mean, I had electricity. I'm saying there weren't, most of the other houses sure. were empty is what I'm saying, yeah. other cabins. Um, I think that, that voice, it sounded exactly like what I was doing. And the album that really hit me like a ton of bricks was Planet Waves, which wasn't wasn't the most popular of his recordings maybe not even by a long shot, mm -hmm. but it, it sounded like what I was doing. That's how I felt about it. And I couldn't get enough of it. I would just sit and I just keep rewinding and playing stuff over and over again. And I got totally obsessed with it. Well, yeah, I, I think that's the best way. I mean, it sounds like you were pretty immersed in it actually. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Planet Waves. Um, I just had to look this up to make sure I was referencing the same one. Now, wait, I actually, had a previous conversation with somebody about this exact record actually <laughs> because there was another Joni Mitchell connection to it actually which oh. is that record came out in 74 which was the same year that Joni's Court and Spark record which was like her biggest commercially successful record and I think Planet Waves actually in terms of sales was pretty good it might not have been as popular as the ones before it but there's this story I guess I'm kind of repeating myself now if you've already heard that episode but there is this story and Joni herself has told this story so I I'm taking her at her word but um, 
Dylan had finished Planet Wave, she'd finished Court and Spark, and they both knew David Geffen. And so mm -hmm. there was, Geffen had some sort of party where he, like a listening party, where, you know, maybe 20, 30 people were there. And they played both records. And Dylan pretended to fall asleep during Gordon's Spark, and Jody was not <laughs> pleased about that. Ah, oh, gotta love it, gotta love it. Yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't fall asleep during Joni Mitchell's album listening party, but uh, I could see that Bob might <laughs> act like that. I, I think that Planet Waves, um, it, it's not, it's not a, it's not. It's not what Court and Spark is. It's right. not that great of a record in that sense. Um, again, I was living what that sounded like, and that's why it it touched me, which is really what I think we all do about why we like some certain artists. Yeah, yep. You know, and, and it's just that something about what they're doing is the soundtrack of something that you've experienced. Right, the formative years in some ways. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, and then you just you know you get behind them you you become the, a fan yeah. of it right and the the song in planet ways that isn't even my favorite song but it said on a night like this i can't get any sleep the wind is so cold outside and the snow so deep uh throw i don't know something about throwing <laughs> another log on the fire kind of a thing and, yeah. and and it's it was just exactly I don't know what he was writing about at that time. I, I guess I do want to, can I add in, um, I, I, I have to add this in. I have to say that when I left that cabin in the spring, um, well, in the summer, I left for a scholarship to college. I got a scholarship on the strength of that story that I was holed up there in really? northern Minnesota. Um, that's enough to make anybody give you a scholarship, apparently. Absolutely. And so I, I got this scholarship and I got down to um, Minneapolis and St. Paul where, I, where I had never been there before and I, and I was going to start college. And it turned out that this other girl who was going to be in my freshman class at that college was Maria Dillon, uh, Bob Dillon's, right. one, of, one of Bob Dillon's, uh, she was actually an adopted right, daughter, right. but she is a, a daughter. And uh, when people told me, I, I came down out of this cabin um, with my guitar and I cut off all my hair because the pipes had frozen in the winter and you couldn't, I couldn't wash my hair and I was, I just had like my one pair of jeans or something, you know, I mean, I was messed up. Sure. I was messed <laughs> up. And here I find out that this girl is going to the school who's the offspring of this my only hero, my right. one and only obsessive hero. And I see her and she's beautiful and glamorous and she's wearing like red lipstick and a black leather jacket. And I'm just like, what the heck? I, I can't handle that. <laughs> and so people would say to me like, well, you have to meet her because you, and I honestly, I would never ever have been sitting up there playing over and over again the voice of this man who's actually like somebody my age's dad. Right. So the, it just it just screwed my head up <laughs> so bad. And I honestly never, I avoided meeting her the entire four years. And we, we graduated together and Bob came to my graduation. Really? Holy but, cow. I mean, I get to say that because it's just funny, but he was there. 
Um, but I, I really never could face her. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. She married a, another folk singer, Peter Himmelman. She married P Peter Himmelman, and Peter and I are friends, and we share the same producer, Rob Genetic. <laughs> and to this day, Maria doesn't really know this story. Wow. I've just sort of nodded and said hello politely a couple of times to her. <laughs> are you sure you want this out there now? <laughs> Yeah, what cats the out of the bag. Peter will. She never might as well know. It's a complimentary story of her. Yeah, that's right? true. There's nothing. There's nothing that she. Would I be make her sound awesome. Yeah. I make her sound awesome. Yeah. She was awesome. So. Yeah. Wow. That's that is amazing. Actually, I didn't know that. Not that I would necessarily, but yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that is a real deep connection. It. It. Well, it's all like just uh, ephemeral. Ephemeral. It's all like it just the shifting sands of life, you know? <laughs> I mean, not, none of, nothing came of any of it. And yet, somehow, it probably was always, like, just sort of this, it was always uh, making me want to do what I do, you know? Yeah. There's just, it's strange how those things have such an effect on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dylan, I mean, his work is just, so wide ranging too. I mean, it's hard to, we're going to probably have to do like a two or three or four or five part episode. Actually, like we're never going to get <laughs> yeah, right. through all of this with Dylan no, today. Oh my gosh, no. But, you no, know. No, and, and the album we're talking about is, like I said, not even probably, no, not one of his best albums. Right. It just happens to be one of the albums that I think is the most poignant. Well, and to that end, um, we usually do it in the second half, but it makes sense actually. So you actually sent me your top five list. You sent yeah. me your this the ones that you liked, and what I thought was kind of interesting about it was there four out of the five were from the seventies, which is actually maybe not his most acclaimed period in a right. lot of ways, right? Like the sixties, especially right. like the early to mid sixties before he went electric, and then like right after he did, yeah. And then actually that like, you know, the time out of mind and, you know, like the, the oh, couple Mercy. that he did. Isn't yeah. called Oh Mercy? But the Mercy ones in like the late 90s, you know, the 80s is completely overlooked, which, yeah. you know, that Maybe. I <laughs> I think that's definitely not his best work. Personally, that's how I feel. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, that, but that was, mm -hmm. again, when you were in your formative years. So that's when you were... It was my, that was my time to be thinking about uh, songwriting, you know, very, it, it was, there was a strong impetus there for me that way. But also, I guess I would say to you that I'm not interested as much in the, uh, the really uh, laid plain kind of folk singing sure. that he was doing that was more part of his um, his obsession with Woody Guthrie. Right. Um, I'm not as interested in that delivery and uh, that type of song structure, although I absolutely love that stuff of his right. too. I really do. Yeah. I'm also not as interested in the later uh, work that he did, for example, with Daniel Lanois, who is also someone I love, admire, mm -hmm. can't say enough wonderful things about the work that they did together, but I'm not that interested in making that sound either, kind mm -hmm. of that, you know, the Peter Gabriel, yeah. that scene. That's not music I'm interested in making. Mm -hmm. So I guess when I talk about Bob Dylan, I talk about the stuff that sounds like stuff that I can relate to in terms of 
what I want to make. Sure. And then that takes me back to the 70s. For some reason, that's that's the period of time that I like the sound they were making. Yeah. How do you feel about his, like, protest music? Well, I like it that he says that he was never really a protest singer. And I, I guess I would like to say the same. Um, the new album that I'm making, I feel like, is uh, has some more serious level of kind of like social commentary which was going to have to happen because we can't i i couldn't go on with my divorcees on the dance floor (laughs) vibe that i was doing much longer because i didn't i didn't like it anymore so i'm kind of getting serious a little bit in my new record Mm -hmm. um but i feel the same way that i wouldn't want to be now pigeonholed again you know that kind of thing about I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want anybody to say, oh, she wrote some protest songs. I'm hoping they don't come across that way. Um, so I guess what I would say about him is I, his protest period, like the times they are a change in, I sing that song sometimes um, in, in my performances. I don't, I don't see how a song could be a better uh, heralding of times hard times coming on which we are witnessing you know yep and we're witnessing the ebb and flow of hard times and those kinds of songs really are helpful to have um but to to make bob dylan into a protest singer is to make shakespeare into a yeah political satirist right to an extent yeah i don't i don't mean to imply that that all that's all he's good for in any way i know you're not i know you're not that's just one of those that's probably that's probably my favorite side of dylan that's you know and i love that he he, you know he puts out records another side of bob dylan he's always been conscious of the fact that like he's more than one thing right that's Um, a great point that's a great point but i love i love his protest music Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. And, you know, The Times They Are a Changing is a perfect song. And what mm-hmm. makes it a perfect song is it's as relevant 50 years later, 60 years later, yeah, as it was when he wrote it. I mean, I wasn't alive in 1964, but it feels, yeah. uh, you know, I would imagine right now seems familiar to people in, as I 1964. Think so. I think times are <clears throat> like that. Blown in the Wind, which is, you know, to a lot of people, like the cliche Bob Dylan song. Yeah. I've been singing that song for the last year because, again, it's relevant again with everything that's been happening with, you know, Black yeah, Lives absolutely. Matter and everything. I mean, the, the song means a lot right now. Yeah. And, you know, it, to be able, again, to have thought that it was written some 50-some years ago and it's still perfect. Mm-hmm. I, so that's just one aspect of well, and Bob's, I love, but. Bob's mentality uh, for that type of social commentary, I do think, came... Um, almost directly from his love of Woody Guthrie. And uh, I've been adding in at the end of one of my songs on this recent tour out to the East Coast and back, um, right during the election time period, I was adding This Land Is Your Land at the end. I do that too, actually. As kind of like a blues. I did it sort of bluesy at the end of uh, a, a, a song of mine. And I see that I never understood, honestly, I never understood that Woody Guthrie's song, a song like This Land Is Your Land, to me sounds like a something that you learn to sing in the 
public school and right. grades grade school, um, like like God Bless America or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I read recently that that Woody Guthrie wrote it as um, uh, a sort of a protest to the America the Beautiful kind of um, Kate. No, not what was her name? Kate Bush? No, that's not the right person, is it? No, the I'm woman not. who was singing. Um, it's like Ethel Merman or somebody like that. <laughs> somebody who was sure. singing God bless, you know, with yeah. the big vibrato. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was um, attributed to a, the more conservative p- party in the America or something. Sure. And so he wrote This Land is Your Land to say, okay, well, from sea to shining sea, well, here here's my version of that Mm -hmm. you know and maybe it's your america but it's my america too that's and again talk about relevant today that's one of the things that um not to get too political but there is a certain political party that exists right now that's really fond of the phrase real americans which is code in my mind to like older rich straight white people which is not the only part of america ridiculous and so you know that's again talking about it seven years ago but you know the greatest verse in this land is your land is the as i went walking i saw a sign there that on the one side said no trespassing but when i looked on the other side it didn't say nothing i love that so great so great yeah brilliant stuff and i think that really affected I, we know we know that that affected Bob Dylan a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, his own songs were coming out of his listening to that. Have you have you heard? There's a speech that Bob Dylan gave just in the past year. Maybe it was two years ago when Barack Obama gave him the presidential award. I don't know if I've heard that one. I know that there is a speech, a uh, very, it's it's been going around, kind of like this is an amazing speech kind of thing. I guess I didn't realize that that's when it took place. Well, I'm, I'm not positive that that's what I'm talking about even, but I know that there's a speech that I believe is from, you know, everything we just said, uh, where he starts saying, if you had listened to, and he says like the name of a song, mm-hmm. as much as I had listened to it, and scrutinized it and pondered it, uh, then you would have written, and then he says the name of one of his songs. Mm -hmm. And he does it like four times in a row. And it just, I think it's just so great. I'll I'll have to check that out. I did watch one of his speeches, but um, that Obama said something about when he presented him with the medal of, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, he said, you know, Meeting him was exactly how you'd want to meet Bob Dylan. He said he was exactly like you'd expect him to be, where, you know, he had his sunglasses on. He was very nice, you know, shook his hand and said, nice to meet you. And then he was gone. You know, he said he didn't hang out. He didn't, like, linger and want to. Yeah. He could have. Yeah. That was his time with the president of the United States. But Bob Dylan left. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I've thought about that kind of stuff a lot. Um as I'm becoming, uh, having more opportunities to, to interact with people about my music, mm-hmm. and also as I'm getting older, I think about stuff like that, about Bob Dylan, my one and only hero, <laughs> my entire life. Um, and I, I think that it's probably, it might be a little bit of arrogance. Like people sometimes who don't like Bob Dylan, they make him out to be like an arrogant guy. Sure. Who doesn't even 
doesn't even care about his Nobel Peace Prize, didn't even say thank you, you know, like he's... He eventually just, did, but yes. <laughs> I, right, well, you know, the, I'm just saying the people who will sputter about that right. kind of stuff. No, I know what you they mean. They try to make it out that he's like some kind of bad guy. But I, I also, I guess just uh, alluding to the Nobel Peace Prize thing that I did see on Facebook where you just like see people say every kind of, every kind of crap, right? Yeah. I saw like that some, I think fairly famous author, I don't remember who it was, said something like, it's like giving the Michelin restaurant award to McDonald's <laughs> or something like that to give the the literary award to Bob Dylan. It was it was some like shockingly yeah. cruel thing. Yeah. And what I, what I thought to myself is, you know, if you've been under that type of scrutiny from the age of 18 to the age of 72 and you've had to watch people say stuff like that about all of your records about all of your performances, about your voice, about everything about you. And now, <clears throat> even though it comes to you being given an award that you didn't ask for. Right. And now, again, yep. they're slinging the mud. Yep. And I can only imagine that you might just feel like you want to just kind of like keep your nose to the grinds or keep your eyes, you know, keep your blinders on, yep. walk straight ahead, and just go back home and put your pajamas on. Right. I don't know. I I don't know. But I that's a thought I've been having lately. I think that's fair. And I think actually one of the things that you said there is an important distinction, which is that he didn't ask for this award. It was the same thing, you mm -hmm. know, uh, President Obama was awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago. Right. And people were outraged about it. I distinctly <laughs> remember people being very outraged. I remember and, that, too. And... Uh, the Swedes really know how to get everybody riled up. <laughs> but he didn't ask for it. You know, it was their mm -hmm. their decision and they were, you know, just attacking him for it. And, you know, Dylan, like you say, he probably didn't know what to think about it. He was the first, you know, songwriter to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. And, mm -hmm. you know, he probably just needed a minute to gather his thoughts. He mm -hmm. said it, liter you know, he said it made him speechless, which I think is fair. I think people forget that nobody reacts exactly the same way to different circumstances it's like being in shock you know you can't if something mm -hmm. traumatic happens you can't expect somebody to act a certain way now winning the nobel prize is not traumatic in that sense but it's shocking in that way you know what do you how do you take that in well there's no way that bob dylan was walking around most of his life saying and what i really want to do is win the <laughs> nobel prize for literature right there's no way because there was no precedent for someone like himself to win it. Right. I'm glad there is president now. Yeah. Yeah, I I I would agree 100%. Um but I I I'm guessing that that wasn't on his bucket list, right. you right. know. He wasn't thinking, god, I hope I get that before I die. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh uh I just saw an interview with John Mayer. Mm -hmm. John Mayer seems to be grappling with his his lack of current popularity and he's he doesn't seem to be handling it well and I, and that's what the interview was about so he was actually saying that okay well good for him in that way he was saying <laughs> that he really has a hard time not uh being as popular as he was before and i i thought of bob dylan as i was watching this interview bob dylan uh, for better or for worse, and John Mayer for better or for worse, everybody has to decide how they're going to, everybody who gets some kind of fame or gets like a platform with the world 
has to decide how they're going to use that, yep. right? And so John Mayer is taking this moment in this interview to explain that he wishes that he was still more popular and that it's been a sort of a hard come down kind of a thing for him. And I don't think that Bob ever did that. I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm saying by saying that, but since we're going to talk about Bob Dylan and since I just saw this thing about John Mayer, I just want to say I don't think Bob Dylan ever got on an interview and started having a heart to heart about how he wished that he was more popular or that he wished people liked his stuff better. Right. Or that he wished he had more uh, followers on Twitter or, <laughs> you know, I don't think Bob went there. And I I like to think with this idea of him being my, it, me kind of being like a what would Bob Dylan do kind of a person. Yeah. I like to think that he had and continues to have and has somehow had a lot of grace and dignity and that sometimes the only thing to do is just to keep quiet. Interesting. I was going to ask if you thought it was because he um, he maybe doesn't care about those things. Do you think he actually <clears throat> cares what his public perception is? Or, and the other person I think of in this way is I, I sometimes wonder if Dylan almost seems like, well, and I mean, it even it even comes of his changing his name from, you know, Robert Allen Zimmerman to Bob Dylan, he kind of took on a persona, a character, relatively, well, not right relatively, away. early in his career, very right early away. in his career. And he's kind of stuck to it. And the thing that has always struck me about Dylan is from the very beginning, he kind of acted as though he were a legend. Yeah, right. He, there was a perception. There was a wall there. Right. And he would sort of make up like, no, actually, I'm from New Mexico. Right. 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 Like that weird stuff. In the same way that Tom Waits <laughs> kind of does. Yeah. Well, and also in in a way, not the same, but we're here in the land of the crown prince of Minneapolis. Yep. And so certainly you could say that Prince <clears throat> came right out of the gate with an idea about a persona. Mm -hmm. And even though Prince was his real name... He got lucky on that one, right? Yeah. He got super lucky on that. But uh, there are certain people who, by some, I don't know, sheer miracle of God or something, they see their destiny. Sure. And they just, they run with it, you know? Yeah. They just run like a racehorse. I don't, I don't know how some people know, and it seems like, Bob, it seems like Bob knew. Here's what I would say about every once in a while I've heard over the years that Bob Dylan has said I was a, I, I'm just a song and dance man. Mm. I and I've sometimes I've thought about him saying that and thinking like, is he joking? Is he being dismissive? <laughs> and I mean, I am not okay. What I am is a person who loves Bob Dylan and he was my hero my whole life. What I'm not is a Bob Dylan scholar and I've run into those people and sure. they they know stuff that I right. don't even want to know right so I'm not I'm not here saying that I have the inside scoop on who Bob Dylan is I'm not I don't want to be like that at all I only want to say in all humility as a songwriter that he's been my hero there sit there I said it take that <laughs> haters you know yeah, yeah. sorry I mean that I can't help it you can't help that somebody's been your hero your whole life right absolutely so what I would say is that he did care that he's always cared and that he does care a lot 
because I just think anybody who would say I'm really a song and dance man, I think he genuinely, he was a singer songwriter. He was a performer. He, he did stuff with George Harrison and right. Tom Petty and, yep. and I, he said he loved Roy Orbison singing yeah. and wished that he could sing better. So I think he was a real musician and musicians want people to like their music, period. I, even if they say they don't, they do. Yeah. Okay, that was well put. So I think this is a good point. I'm going to do a Dylan cover. We'll be back in just a minute for some more conversation. Get your mind off of winter time Cause you ain't going nowhere Boy, rise high Tomorrow's the day when the bride's gonna come Oh, are we gonna fly Down in the easy chair Morning came the morning way Pick up your money, pack up your tent Cause you ain't going nowhere Boy, drive the house Tomorrow's the day when the bride's gonna come Oh, we gonna fly down in the air's a chain Strap yourself to the tree with the roots Cause you ain't going nowhere Boy, ride me high Tomorrow's the day when the bride's gonna come Oh, we gonna fly Down in the air's a chair Fly 
down in the easy chair. Courtney Yasmine for part two. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really enjoying this. Thank you for having me on the show, Zach. Absolutely. I'm enjoying it, too. This is Good. a fun conversation. Good. Okay, so as I mentioned, you sent me in advance your top five, which is great. So if I ask Good. you, then will you give me like a quick hit okay. on what you think? Okay. Again, these are like mostly 70s. It's really interesting. Although, honestly, a lot of these are my some of my favorite two in particular number two which we'll get to planet waves we've already kind of talked about yep. anything else you want to say about that record no okay good. blood on the tracks that's my favorite i think too yeah i feel like that's i feel like that's everybody's favorite I, it might be i i don't know but um i mean it doesn't have like a rolling stone on it so and it doesn't have hurricane on it right um and it doesn't have the old original stuff the times they are a change right. i mean so you know, there's a lot. But tangled up in blues. Right, there. but it's got the beautiful, beautiful pieces. I think those are, I think it's a whole album of very beautiful pieces, and I'm certainly not the only person who thinks that. Yeah, and one of the greatest breakup songs in the history of ever, Idiot Wind. Idiot Wind. <laughs> Holy cow. I love that song. Yeah, beautiful. And you told me that you sometimes do uh, Baby, You're a Big Girl now. Yeah, yeah, I like that song a lot, and that song works well uh, for a female to sing too. Yeah. The lyrics are very poignant that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, Desire. Yeah, the Desire album. I I actually over the past few years have had the very nice opportunity to play with Scarlett Rivera, who is the violinist from oh, the yeah. Desire album and from I don't know I think another couple yeah. of albums. Um, and she uh, comes back to the Minnesota area and does some shows and sometimes plays those parts with 
um, artists who are doing, you know, Bob Dylan covers kind of thing. Wow. And so I've done some work with her and it is thrilling. Um, she is a very uh, fine uh, older woman who's really taking great care of herself and plays as beautifully as ever and um, had, you know, pretty exciting romantic time of it apparently with Bob really oh yeah <laughs> wow. during the time then they were touring and like painting the stars on their faces and stuff that was a really hip time I think in his career and in her life so that's what makes me think of that about the desire album and I just I think that the violin stuff yeah and the way he chose to uh, have that spirit on that album is really original yeah absolutely um, yeah, great record. Kind of the beginning, in some ways, of his like religious kind of vibe too. In some ways. Well, but the Desire album is like mystical. You know, it has the more uh, like his time in Mexico kind of yeah. a vibe about it. Almost like the like like you think about like the mission bells kind mm -hmm. of stuff. You know, very very more like well, like mystical, and when the other stuff gets to be like more like straight up. Straight up Christianity thing. I don't know. Speaking of, yeah, the next one, Slow Train Coming, which really mm -hmm. is that <clears throat> kind yeah. of start. I guess maybe that's a better descriptor of that yeah. period. Oh, but I, I, um, I really do think that um, those are cool songs, though. And I do I, too. I do think that um, that's the one you got to serve. You got to serve right? somebody. I love that song. I, I, I want to say very, if I can say it like super fast, that I had a really bad experience right before Thanksgiving with a promoter. Okay. And I went to, I, I had a conversation with the man on the phone and then I went to bed that night and the, the promoter was offering me a lot of money but to do things that I didn't at all think were the right things for my career. Um, and I had to, I had to turn down the offer mm -hmm. and, and I knew it was the right thing to do. And I went to bed that night and I dreamed <laughs> that I was in like like I was in the song you got to serve somebody and the promoter was like a floating head like the devil and Bob <laughs> Dylan was like the other side floating head of like god and the song was going on and it had like this you might be a socialite with a long string of pearls and you might be a businessman and like all these different people were like coming in and out and I was like having to grapple with the big questions. But I, luckily I, I stayed on the side of Bob Good once again. It was like, what would Bob Dylan do? He, he, he wouldn't have sold himself down the river either. He avoided it. He always has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, good for you. That song is amazing to me. That song is like turned up in, you know, in every television show in the past few years. It's yeah. like the, the song for Brilliant. Episodes. Brilliant. It's, yeah, it's perfect. Genius. As they say in the UK, genius. And then <laughs> your final one is uh, The Times They Are A-Changing. The, the lone 60s kind of, I don't want to say classic era because that implies the other eras are not classic. But mm -hmm. you know what I mean? This is like the... Um, I don't know. That's that's such an iconic record, though. It you, really is. Yeah. What are, do you have the list of the songs? So here are the tracks. The times they are changing. Okay. Of course. Okay. Good. Let's hear what the names of the songs are. Uh, Ballad of Hollis Brown. I mm -hmm. love that one. Mm -hmm. With God on Our Side. Yeah. See, I guess I think I think With God on Our Side is really great. I do too. Those first three are kind of the big ones for me yep. until the later part of the record. One too many mornings. Nice enough. Yeah. North Country <clears throat> Blues. 
-hmm. Only a pawn in their game. I love that one too. Nice little protest. I love that one. Yeah. Boots of Spanish leather. We were talking earlier privately about mm -hmm. Nancy Griffith, who does a wonderful version of that song mm -hmm. too. Yeah. When the ship comes in, the lonesome death of Haiti Carroll and Restless Farewell. Yeah, Restless Farewell. I would say that's another one. Well, I I guess I would say about that record that um, it's the that tone again of the remoteness that's in planet waves yeah <clears throat> that's that's something that i look for as like a hallmark of the something that's unique to bob dylan and it 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 weaves in and out of his he doesn't always want that tone i suppose but i think it's one of the best things that's unique about the sound of his recordings mm -hmm. you know that lone voice coming out of nowhere yeah where you're just like what who is this guy mm -hmm. you know where you just your mind is blown and it was still relatively <laughs> early when he was finding himself in a way although like i say i think he he kind of came out fully formed in some ways you know yeah maybe not that first record but mm -hmm. um Certainly, when he started writing, because that first record, I don't think has any of his own songs, does it? The one or if that it has, does, it has "Hey, a Hey, Woody Guthrie, I yeah. wrote you song." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that song. I think that's like his first song ever that he wrote. Right, and then the times they were changing. That was the first record that he did where it was all his own compositions. That's mm -hmm. his first record where it was all. Right. And actually, the other thing that strikes me as holy cow, how is this possible? Back then, he wasn't even just putting out one record a year. Like 1964, he put out two records that yeah, year. You know, yeah. he was just pumping these songs out. But they weren't um, they weren't elaborate arrangements, and they weren't right. elaborate recordings. Right. And in that regard, you know, you can do it. Yeah, that's true. If you've got the material. Exactly. That's the key, though. The if songs. If you've got the material, right. The songs have to be amazing in in order for it to be a record like that one, yeah. where it's essentially guitar and voice and harmonica yeah and that, and that's it yeah right? you've got to have 10 perfect or near perfect songs you can get away with one or two filler maybe right but it's got to be you know maybe that's something that i'd like to say as part of this is that i've watched i i've i've been doing some um helping other artists mm -hmm. um lately Partly to earn extra money when I'm not on tour, and uh, partly because it's it's really a wonderful joy to yeah. help lift other people up. Yep. And um, I've been watching people I've been producing and people who I've been giving consultations about songwriting. Uh, I've been watching that this thing that happens. It's about what you just said that. If you can play the guitar and the harmonica and you wrote the song and you're singing it <clears throat> or whatever your instrument is, whatever you play the keyboard, right. you know, whatever your thing is, uh, it's, it's enough to just have written the song and perform it and play the instrument and everything that you're doing. And if you do all of that and you make your recordings and yet you don't, you didn't you don't wake up the next morning and you haven't turned into Bob Dylan or you don't have a million tweets about the new recordings that you just put up or whatever right. is the current uh, whatever your measure of success. measure yeah. whatever you're hoping whatever you are hoping for in response if you're not getting that there is this uh, je, the je ne sais quoi the I don't know what it is thing about 
how do, how do you say, well, I did, I did everything. I wrote the song. I sang it in tune. I, I played the parts. I did everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's still not, it's not Bob Dylan. How, what is wrong? What am I doing wrong? What, how do we know what the, the m- magical, mystical, brilliant thing is? You know, we don't even know, I don't think. I th- isn't, <clears throat> isn't part of being an artist chasing that? Yeah. I think that's what yeah. we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, right? Is your, and it's, it's an elusive and it's, it's, a, it's a magical thing, right? It's yeah. just something, it's like you have all the right ingredients, but there's one missing. And when you get that one, then you, you get to experience ecstasy. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to walk through the, the, the veil of the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob Dylan's done that a lot of times. No matter, you know, yeah. no matter what you think of any of it, <laughs> uh, he's he's clearly he's lifted that veil. Yeah. You know. It um, and and thinking on that too, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, but you know. It's easy for us to be sitting here in a nice recording studio in Minneapolis talking about, you know, can we write anything as as well as Bob Dylan did? And then think about where Bob Dylan sits, you know, and where he might be and who is he, if he ever thinks that way, which he might not at this point. You know, he's certainly been doing it long enough. But is he still chasing that muse? Is he still trying to, you know, he he's relatively, I mean, he has, he has, laid some level of compliment on a few people. Leonard Cohen in particular, mm-hmm. he yeah. always admired as yep. a writer. Um, so, you know, there were people who inspired him and obviously Woody Guthrie, huge <laughs> in the beginning of his career, maybe still, but certainly in the very beginning. Right. So, you know, is he still at that point and how hard must it be? Maybe that's why the Nobel Prize and all this stuff is maybe it's hard for him to get excited anymore. Um, I used to care, but things have changed. <laughs> you know, how, how mm-hmm. when you are the guy and there's nowhere to go but down, how do you manage? Right. Well, that's what. Um, and you've got people grasping at your feet to pull you down because they don't like that you're up there. Right. I, I, I think one thing is that a guy who's done what Bob Dylan has done, what Joni, a woman who's done what Joni Mitchell has done. They are, I think they have the ideal situation in the sense that they, they, they've been able, Patti Smith is another person, people who've been able to maintain a good name mm-hmm. and a lasting respect and acclaim. Um, uh, We've seen in every generation and every decade of music, we've seen people who were popular and then everybody turned on them and said, I never want to hear another Lionel Richie, Phil Collins. I don't know. Pick pick yep. your person where the world turns on those people because there's, they've heard too much of their stuff. Yep. And, they, and some of those people never regain. Right the respect of their peers or um, society. Or they end up playing the state fair circuit for 20 years doing their or song. Or casino. Which, which, God bless them, because 
So, right. You know, that's what you have to do if you're that person. It's not their fault. Right. You know? Right. I, I, you know, we don't know what it's about. It's all, it is all a mystery. But I, I guess what I would say is if you've, if you've been able to maintain your good name, um, I would think that you can sleep a lot better. Yeah. Than if you were a person who maybe had a, a, a hit when you were younger and you were never able to reachieve yeah. that same level. I know there are a lot, we all know, there are a lot of artists and who struggle with that. And that thing about, will I ever be able to do it again? Or will I be able to maintain this? I mean, you know, there aren't that many people that we can talk about this way and say, you know, you, you may not like all of it, you may not even like any of it, but it still all is pretty gosh darn good. <laughs> And, you know, the guy definitely put in the time, you know, he put in the effort. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny, too, because I guess maybe I'm too immersed in the idea that, like, at this point, all my friends are other singer-songwriters. So, you know, Bob Dylan is, is not somebody who, like, I ever hear people say negative things about. Do you? Um, yeah, I have, I have a song of my own that says, my heroes have all been picked apart by people more savvy than me who say they know what it's all about. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've definitely had to uh, hear Bob Dylan disparaged. It's not in the singer-songwriter crowd, right? certainly, for the most part. But it's definitely out in the world. Um, there are people, and and it's and it's probably more. It's probably only happened to me. I I, I hate to say this, but it, it's probably only happened to me in America. Mm. Probably hasn't happened to me when I've been on tour in Europe or in the United Kingdom. I think um, I think the Europeans hold Bob Dylan very high regard. Mm -hmm. Even the young young people in their teens who come to my shows. They will say to me like, "I love Bob Dylan. You love Bob Dylan." <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. Uh, but in America, yeah, I think there are people who just start off on that. You know, I just don't get it. Uh, you know, they'll be like, "Really, Bob Dylan? That's your influence, really?" Hmm. Yeah, there. I think you know, and he toured constantly, and people saw him play a lot of bad shows. Yeah. And some of the, some of those people haven't gotten over there. <laughs> I've been at a bad Bob Dylan show. <laughs> I've been at a lot of Bob. I haven't. I've probably gone to fewer than eight Bob Dylan shows in my whole life. Yeah. I'm so like I said, I'm not a fanatic in that regard at all. I just he's my hero, but I wasn't like following him around. <clears throat> um, I I've I can't say that I was ever at a good Bob Dylan concert ever. I've never seen in my own life i've never seen bob dylan perform live witnessed it in in being in the same room and and thought it was good yeah i went to a bob dylan concert a few years ago with garrison keeler and sam hudson his producer um and they had like front row tickets sure so i had garrison keeler on one side of me and sam hudson the producer of the Prayer Room Companion on the other oh, side. Oh, I know. He doesn't return my emails, that guy. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I'm, I, I don't have it in with him. So I just, they invited me and I got to sit right up in the front with those guys. And um, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about either one of those gentlemen on either <laughs> side of me, but I will say that none of us were thrilled yeah. 
with what was going on on stage. Um, so I don't think I'm the only person who feels that way either. No, the, you the definitely live shows. I don't even know when the live shows were good. Have you ever seen, there's a recording of Bob singing this song called Johanna's mm-hmm. Dream. Johanna's Dream. Have you ever seen that recording? That I don't know. Or but, it's a it's a filming that seems to be very like haphazardly that somebody just captured a live no, performance. No, no. And his he has the white wash on his face, mm-hmm. and his hat is pulled down. Uh, it's I think it's it says it all. And I noticed that when the Nobel Prize people they put out something about how they chose mm-hmm. and they, they mentioned that Johanna's dream interesting as one of the pieces that they h- held up as I don't know part of their criteria or something sure um, so just to say I think he has given some absolutely brilliant performances I'm sure yeah I really I believe that in my heart I believe that yeah I just have never seen one of them I bet he was fantastic in the 60s and into the 70s mm-hmm. I bet yeah, because even though I like those albums later on, uh, and I think a lot of those recordings are brilliant recordings, right? I mean, I even like some of the most recent um, recordings, but I the live show, he, I don't, I don't think he was, I don't know, I don't, I don't think he was trying to, um, I don't know what he was trying to do. Well, he doesn't. I, I, I can't in, even begin to say. He doesn't really engage in his his audience in the same way that we're accustomed to. So maybe that's not so much his fault. Although, I don't know. I mean, it is what he signed up for in a way. I don't, you could go two different <laughs> ways on it, right? Like, yeah, that's what he signed up for. He doesn't. He doesn't have to, I guess. Like, it's not. He, he doesn't. He. What I gather. The, okay, so the most recent time I saw him wasn't that recent, but. It was 4th of July, I think like 2004 or something like that. And uh, he and Paul Simon in a double bill. So Dylan went first, they sang like three duets, and then Paul Simon came out. So the, the most notable difference was Bob Dylan said one sentence in between yeah. his songs. He said one sentence the entire time he was on stage. He, this was in Milwaukee when I used to live in Wisconsin. And he said, I used to date a girl from Milwaukee. <laughs> that helps us, Bob. Like, good, nice. Okay. Everything else, you just oh played song gosh. to song to song. And I, I know there are a lot of people who say they've been to concerts where, he's, where one sentence was more than they got. Well, and you could probably find an essay written by some Dylan scholar who's actually still pondering what he meant by that one (laughs) sentence that he said. Or who she is, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sure they know. And then Paul (laughs) Simon comes out and, of course, is charming and likable, although I have a bone to pick with Paul Simon personally at this point, but we'll get into that another time. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear it. But, um, you know, so quite honestly, Paul Simon blew Bob Dylan out of the water that particular day. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because his songs are better or his performance was better. Mm -hmm. It's just that he actually seemed like he cared it seemed like he mm-hmm. cared that there was an audience there who paid money to see him. And Dylan didn't. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, but maybe he's at a point where he, or maybe he was just having a bad day. Well, let's let's throw in this one other thing. Let's throw in this thought about the people pleaser. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking about this because I think that I, I think the worst work I've done is the work that I would put into the category of my people pleaser work sure um where i thought that i wanted to please the audience i wanted people to like me 
I wanted people to have fun at my concert. Right. I wanted, um, I just wanted everybody to like me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I think that's like, you know, rolling the gutter ball in a way as a singer songwriter is to keep trying to like, I don't know why I'm talking about bowling, but it's like you're trying to like roll it right down, you know, and make the strike. But you, the things that you can do wrong make the ball go off, right? And uh, one of them is to start focusing too much on how the people are receiving you, right. kind of thing. And I, I don't know. I, I don't. We don't know why Bob acted the way he did or still does on stage. We don't know. We'll never know. But I do admire, and one of the reasons that he is my hero is that I feel like he, some in some way, he had his eye on this um, more spiritual prize. Um, that the songs meant, his songs meant a lot to him. There's no way we can say they didn't. And he, he, that, I think that's what he cared about. Mm hmm and I like that. I like saying that. That makes me feel good to say that. <laughs> so I, that's what I kind of, that's the way I look at it sometimes. It's yeah. like he, he was true to the songs that he wrote. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. I also think mm -hmm. there's, I mean, this, it's such a complicated issue. I mean, we could do a podcast on just this alone and whether it, there's... It's like a brain twister. Right. And the, the fundamental question, I guess, is, <laughs> is Bob Dylan or any performer under an obligation to make their audience feel a certain way. I would argue not really, except the part of me that doesn't agree with that is a part of me that couldn't do that to an audience of people. There's a there's that part of me that couldn't <coughs> not care a little bit. You know what I do you, if I if totally I, I totally know. If people are paying money to see me, I'm not saying I have to play my hit for them. I'm not saying Bob Dylan has to do like a Rolling Stone at every concert he does. No, I you right. know he can play what he wants to play. And actually, uh, the times that I've seen Neil Young, I've been fascinated by that too, because he's somebody who, it almost seems to me like he thrives on that like lack of like, I'm gonna play what I wanna play. You guys can do what you want, <laughs> kind of vibe from, mm -hmm. from Neil Young. But Dylan, like, he, I think he's actually a little bit better about throwing those bones in terms of like giving people at least a couple of what they wanna hear. Mm -hmm. And then for, you know, sometimes, is every once in a while he'll get on a kick where like he'll do an entire show behind the piano and people go, what are you doing back there? Right. Or something like that, right? But um, Or the reggae versions right, of everything. Right. But like, you know, is he really under an obligation or is he entitled to be an artist and do what he is feeling in that moment? And maybe he doesn't feel like talking to us today. Maybe what we've paid money for is to experience his artistry, and he's allowed to tell us what his artistry is. It's complicated because I can go both ways. Well, I this is making me. I mean, I'm here. I'm here as a singer songwriter myself, right? I'm 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 speaking. At, I'm not speaking as a, an expert about Bob Dylan. I'm speaking as a singer songwriter. So I'll say that right now um, I'm making this new album, and I there's a different tone to these new songs, as I said. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy with it, and I really feel good about it. And I also uh, get requests for songs of mine that are, like I said, from my when we were we we were having a blast playing like really rock songs and doing like really fun small club 
rock touring. Yeah. And <clears throat> when people ask me to play like a song of mine called Pretty Kitty, don't want to be a pretty kitty. Um, I, you know, I don't want to play Pretty Kitty right now. And I, and, and there are some other songs, there's another song of mine that's called Day Drunk. Mm-hmm. That is like kind of fun, has kind of a fun groove. Don't want to play that. Sure. Don't want to play it. So uh, I right now I'm playing a set at my shows that is uh, almost unrecognizable if people haven't come to my show in like five years. Sure. If they came five years ago and they haven't stayed in touch with me and now they're coming back to my music... Um, which is kind of happening to me because I'm getting more recognition right now. So some people who had right. older records of mine are starting to come back and they aren't, they're not thrilled that I'm not playing those songs that they know so right. well. And I can't bring myself to do it. Yeah. I, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. I mean, maybe there will be a time when I have reached a level of acclaim where there are a lot of people at my shows and there's a lot of material they want to hear and I don't know what I'll do and I, I'm hoping that moment's coming right. and I hope I get to find out <laughs> but right now I know I've, I've disappointed people lately I, and you're okay with that well I think I put on the best shows I've ever put see, on see there you go that's think, a great answer I think the show I just put on a week ago here in Minneapolis it was a, it was solo but and I played two songs that no one's ever heard that I've never played live before ever I think that show is the best show I've done so far. Wow. Where'd you play? I played at the Dunn Brothers on Grand and Snelling, sure. right across from my alma mater, yeah. right across from McAllister. Yeah. I used and to be my neighborhood. Really? Garrison Keeler actually used to be a neighbor, actually. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Earlier, well, yeah. and his bookstore is right around the corner right. from this little coffee house where I played. Yep. And I, um, I, I felt great about what I did, but I... That night, a week ago, whenever that was, last Monday or something, some people did come up to the stage and ask for some specific songs that I just said, I'm sorry, I can't do that song tonight. <laughs> I just, I think I can't. that's fair. Yeah, I do think that's fair. I was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I got my head in a certain place and I feel really good about it, yeah. you know, and I, I, it just feels like it would really drag me back to a place that I don't want to go. Mm hmm. I totally think that's fair. Well, this has been lovely. I thank you for taking the time to do this and have this I conversation. I loved it. Thank you, Zach. We should thank do you. part two one of these days. Please, let's. Um, so, let's. Uh, thank you. Can you point us to your website one more time? Yeah, so it's CourtneyYasmine.com, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-Y-A-S-M-I-N-E-H, CourtneyYasmine.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, and I'd love to hear from you. And I have a new record and my first novel coming out yeah, in that's 2017. Yeah, <laughs> that's something, too. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This has been lovely. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again soon, everybody. I seen love go by my door 
It's never been this close before Never been so easy, so slow I've been shooting in the dark too long Something's not right, it's wrong You're gonna make me lonesome when you go Purple clover, Queen Anne's lace Crimson hair across your face You can make me cry, but you don't know I don't remember what I was thinking of Spoiling me with too much of your love, honey You're gonna make me lonesome when you go There are dragon clouds so high I've only known careless love It always hit me from below But this time around is more correct It's right on target, so direct You're gonna make me lonesome when you go There's flowers on the hillside blowing crazy Crickets talking back and forth in the rain Blue river running slow and lazy Stay with you forever, never realize the time But situations have ended same Relationships have evolved it bad Might have been like Relains and Lambos But there's no way I ever could compare All them lonely scenes to this affair You're gonna make me lonesome when you go Oh, you're gonna make me wonder what I'm doing Staying far behind, maybe without you And you're gonna make me wonder what I'm saying Gonna make me give myself a good talking to So I will look for you in Honolulu San Francisco and Ashtabula You're gonna have to leave me now I know But I'll see you In the skies above And the tall grass And the ones I love You're gonna make me lonesome When you go You're gonna make me lonesome When you go You're gonna make me lonesome